Welcome to Beyond Multiple Choice, a podcast exploring the future of assessment. Here, you'll gain perspectives from international researchers, practitioners, policymakers, and innovators about factors shaping our approach to assessment in education and the workforce. In this episode, you'll hear from three educators who teach at the primary, secondary, and post-secondary levels. They'll share their observations of how classroom education has changed over the pandemic along with lessons that can guide how we all strive to improve it moving forward. Here's your host, Jeff Ross. Well, welcome everybody. Hello. Let me begin by first saying a big welcome to Alexa Makarian, who's assistant principal at the McClure Elementary School in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and is a recognized leader in school leadership and school learning improvement to Graham Smart from the UK, an outstanding classroom teacher. I've I've actually studied in classes and seen him in action, and he's always been at the forefront of innovation and learning for all age ranges and abilities. Uh, And Graham currently splits his time between teaching and consultancy nowadays. And my third guest this afternoon is Dr. Mary Richardson, Professor of Educational Assessment and Academic Head of Learning and Teaching for the Department of Curriculum, Pedagogy and Assessment at University College London's Institute of Education. With that, I should probably introduce myself as well. I'm Jeff Ross. Um, I'm the chair for today's panel discussion. Uh, I've been in publishing and then in education for far too many years. Years, uh, both as a consultant and as a practitioner, and I specialise in, in digital assessment and learning. I work internationally, and for 20 years or so, uh, I've been conference director of a m- very large international conference in based out of London on the whole subject of e-assessment and digital assessment. That's the e-assessment question. And for the last five years, I've been conference director or co-conference director um, for the Beyond Multiple Choice series of conferences, first out of Washington and then out of the virtual world. Uh, And it's within the auspices of the Beyond Multiple Choice conference that we bring you this podcast today. Hopefully we can look forward to an entertaining and informative half hour, 30 minutes or so of discussion. And what that discussion is going to be about, and what I'd like to do on this podcast, is to look at the world of learning, training, assessment as we emerge from the pandemic of COVID-19. And today I'm going to ask our panellists to look at some of those issues of how educators and students and other stakeholders are approaching learning and assessment after the disruption of the past year and a half. But I'm going to start off by asking each of our three guests today, possibly just to introduce themselves and give us some view of their experiences over the last 18 months and the return back from those 18 months. Uh, And maybe if I might start with with Mary. Sure. Uh, Thanks very much, Jeff, um, for inviting me to take part in this. So as Jeff said, I'm Mary Richardson. I'm a Professor of Educational Assessment at UCL Institute of Education in London. Um, We're quite rare based. Um, There's only four professors in England who focus on educational assessment. So um, I'm officially a geek in that that regard, but something I wear with pride because um, I think it's an endlessly interesting uh, topic. 
And I think for us um, in the world of assessment research in particular, everything that's happened to us, people, you know, have used that word unprecedented so many times that it's kind of just got a bit dull now. But what I would say is we are constantly learning and relearning how to do what we thought we knew we were doing. And that's an interesting part of this. I learn new things every week. And just to sort of give you the context, basically, it would be more than 18 months ago that um, UCL decided that we had to shut down overnight, more or less, put all of our teaching and learning online. And we, of course, have an international cohort of students, many of whom are in London, and then we're scrambling to get home to China, Korea, Chile, the States, Australia, right across Europe. And those are just my students on my MA in assessment. So that gives you in that context. So we suddenly had to decide, okay, how are we going to help them learn what they were planning to learn? And how will we run the rest of the year online? So um, that was an interesting moment, attempting to put an entire university online. The next big challenge we had, which I was seconded to do, was to join the UCL um, overarching board for the entire university because they suddenly realised, of course, we can't have students sitting end-of-year exams in exam halls. So what are we going to do? So there was a group of us who had to work out what was going to be the fairest way to replicate or even you know, you can't really replicate, to be fair, but try and come up with an assessment that would characterise what students had learned and give them an opportunity to show that learning. I think, so for me, those are some of the biggest things have just been attempting to accept the change that's gone on, ride with it sometimes. I literally just stepped back into a classroom with real human students last week. (laughs) Um, I do all my teaching at night because most of my students are working full time. And, um, and it, I have to say, I was just, it's delightful. I'd forgotten how lovely it is to have real human beings in front of me and, and interact with them. But that's not to say that I haven't learned a huge amount. I've completely revised how I teach, having had this experience now. And there are certain things I will never go back to doing. So for me, it really has been transformational in that regard. And I think you would see the same pattern more or less across all of higher education in the UK. Lovely. Thank you, Mary. Transformational. I suspect we're going to we're going to hear that word quite a bit today. But um, maybe I can now push to almost to the other end of the spectrum from university to elementary school and ask Alexa from Tulsa if she cares to pick up the the subject. Yes, Jeff. Thanks so much for having me on today. I have been in education. This is my sixth year now. So while I am kind of still new to education, the entire kind of landscape of education as we knew it from back when I started to now has completely changed and transformed. Um, So it's something completely different now. In the school that I work at, we start with pre-K students who are three years old, and we go up to sixth graders who are uh, 12 and 13 years old. So we have kind of a, a wide range of students in the early developmental years. And just the pandemic and COVID has really tested the boundaries of like what education is and and what it can be. And we're still in the pandemic currently and still uh, trying to figure that stuff out. We are back in person fully, uh, have been since February of this year. So um, just 
really trying to meet the needs of students and the lack of socialization has like greatly impacted students, especially because they're so young in elementary school that um, not having been socialized with other students for around 12 to 18 months has had a, a tremendous effect on just students as a whole and and their learning and being back in person, what their learning is going to look like. Lovely. Thank thank you, Alexa. And we'll come back, I think, to the lack of socialisation in this whole area of the non-academic part of being at schools and colleges in a couple of minutes, if we may. But before we do do that, Graham, would you care to fill the gap between the two um, so far? Yeah, no problem, Jeff. I think for me, what was interesting about when the pandemic first started was how unprepared many of our secondary schools were to move online. Um, And the schools that had been sort of pressing ahead and were well organised with their use of virtual learning environments or Google Classroom or or that had been organised really, really were at a major advantage, particularly during the first lockdown in March 2019. But even when the schools were organised and ready, the device issue was massive, you know, only, you know, not every person would have had a device. And if you were talking about families that I'm regularly dealing with in Lewisham, where's where I still do a bit of teaching, often there's three or four siblings and only one device. So even if you, even if they have a device, there may not be enough to go around uh, in families. So there was, there, there was certainly an access issue to the technology initially, but there was also in many schools in, 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 in South East London in particular, and I can speak categorically on this one, they, they didn't, they weren't ready. They were completely taken off balance. How that changed to, from the from the first lockdown to what I would call the third lockdown, I know there was a second lockdown, but the kids were still in school for most of that. And then the third lockdown where we was all at home in that horrible sort of Jan-Feb time, the schools had moved on massively. Like, you know, the, the progress was like, I don't know, 10, 15 years worth in one, in that short period. So many schools had got themselves together and got themselves organised. From a teaching perspective because obviously I'm a maths teacher by trade and obviously I was teaching online I think one of the things I did spot as well um, and I'll be interested to hear uh, other uh, people's thoughts on this I felt the mathematical diet of students changed over that period of time online I think there was a lot less problem solving a lot less focusing on the working out so you know as, as a maths teacher often you know if a student doesn't get the final answer correct what you really need to know is where they've gone wrong and more importantly than that, perhaps even, is why they've gone wrong. A lot of the online learning was only evaluating the final answer that was used. It's a lot of the online systems that were in, that were in place that sh- the teachers were relying on. They wasn't getting to that that part of it. So I do feel, from a mathematician's point of view, pe- you know, from a pedagogical mathematician's point of view, our students' diet math changed, and it was much more on the fluency side of things that they were really uh, doing a lot of their online homework and of course that was easier to deliver online as well for the teachers so I can understand why it happened and I'm not judging anyone talking now having year 11s back in a classroom which is fantastic I can straight away see with the year 11s this year they're not as good at problem solving as years gone by they need to really catch up in that area so Whilst I think there was an amazing transformation in terms of the fact that teachers managed to get themselves you know familiar with the technology, I do think there were some changes to how the curriculum was delivered and not all of them were positive. Some of them were. Some of it's more engaging online than it is in the classroom. Some teachers actually were better online than they were actually in the classroom, to tell you the truth, because of obviously behaviour. So, you know, it's been really mixed bag, though, a real mixed bag, I would say. 
thank you, Graham. And and I think I think I I support what you were saying there about how how things have changed as a result. But I'd I'm, I'd like to look at the whole area of the students actually themselves, if um, as our first port of call. From a personal reason, being an uncle and an adopted grandfather of a, quite a few kids who have been making the transition from one level of school to another, I'm, I'm much concerned about the, the loss of social interactions and, and the impact, particularly on those kids who are moving into elementary school, from elementary to high school, from primary to secondary in, in the UK language, uh, and from high school into college uh, and how that disruption you think may have affected them and whether you've seen any or believe there are any characteristics that we, we can identify as a result of that hiatus in their education or hiatus in their attendance of schools and meeting with friends and so on. Can I come back to uh, Alexa to start with? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think it's a very interesting perspective being at the elementary or like, as you say, primary level. Uh, because our pre-K and kindergarten students that are coming in, like they've never known anything different. So um, just wearing masks and being in school and social distancing, things like that, like that's all that they know about school. So they're actually pretty much like thriving in this. It's actually our older kids. So I'd be interested to hear about the secondary level, how students are adapting, because um, it's our older students, like our fourth, fifth and sixth graders that are having the most challenging time because they have known something different pre-pandemic and then going through the pandemic, um, we're kind of starting to be like caregivers for their younger siblings. And now they're like back in school and they're having to be kids again um, and learning and they're really having a difficult time doing that. So yeah, I'd be interested to hear about the secondary aspects. Graham? Yeah, no problem. Um, for the secondary school students, I think they really missed being in school socially. I think it was a massive impact. And I don't just mean from a teaching perspective. I mean from their own, you know, at that age, so much is going on. And you, you socially, you're learning so much as well, good and bad. I think the thing that was interesting for me, what I found from the experiences that I had, obviously having to teach online and being someone who relies very much on trying to create a certain energy in a classroom where people bounce off each other and we create that energy in a room. And when I go into a lesson, when I'm observing a maths lesson, often you know whether it's outstanding within a very few seconds of walking in because you feel the energy in the room. And I'm sure that's the same in other subjects and it's the same in, at university level. And correct me, if, you know, feel free to jump in and say, you feel the energy in the room and you think, oh, everyone's really up for this. They really want to learn this. You know, they want to be here. They want to do it. I found that very hard to do online. I could not replicate that online. And I, I'm first to admit that I just couldn't achieve that. What's interesting is, to give you some actual concrete examples, initially I started off, I was doing these fantastic PowerPoints or flip charts or looms. or I learned, I lost track of how many different pieces of software I, I, I was asked to, to learn and use. And then, and then I thought to myself, these kids, they want to see my face, I think. I mean, if you see my face, you might not agree, but point being... What I did was I, went sort of, I sort of went hybrid model and I, I cleared out the conservatory, put all the furniture to one side, put an old like paper flip chart and put a camera on it, had an iPad there to deal with the chat and I did a vote at the end and so I taught the lesson on the flip chart. I had to prepare the flip charts in advance. It was old tech but sort of with new tech hybrid and I did a sort of a survey at the end uh, uh, on Google and the kids preferred that model. 
the kids preferred that model rather than being all on, online and just hearing my voice. They actually preferred seeing me move my hands around and crack a few jokes. And I mean, it was cracking jokes to myself, but nothing new there. But the point being, it, it was interesting to see they was longing for that sort of interaction. And even though that wasn't as good as being in a classroom, it was better than just being on screen. And so I spoke to quite a few of them afterwards and I said we preferred that to just being on screen all the time. Uh, in the traditional sense. So that was that's some concrete examples. I think they were longing for that banter, not banter, that's the wrong word, but that interaction where it's high energy, high octane. And the other thing I would say as a teacher, particularly the sort of areas that I work in, in, in Lewisham, which is one of the most deprived areas in London, yes, your subject knowledge is important. Yes, how you deliver it is important. But what's also really important with those types of kids is the psychology, how you work on them as an individual, that relationship that you build with them and that's far harder to establish those relationships that you need online and that's something that no one's really spoke about but is absolutely vital to students achieving that you know what they should achieve not just academically but as people as well and i'll shut up there Jeff. no no that's that, that's brilliant graham um mary um in terms of university, of course, there's another element to this. We're not talking about kids. We're talking about young people, um, young adults who have travelled sometimes very great distances to come to a university, and, and it's all a new experience for them. Your, your, your take on, on, on the switch that was forced on us by COVID-19 onto online and then coming back to the classroom? I think um, I particularly think for the 2020 cohort starting university was incredibly difficult. Um, to a certain extent, this year there was a kind of sense of okay, we've experienced this before. But that 2020 year was particularly different for two reasons. One was what happened, which was just the utter fiasco that was A levels in this country, which are the exams that students take generally for university entrance they're just utter fiasco with the way that was dealt with at the end um and then students going to university but not actually being able to start and then um some universities sort of saying no you need to now go home again and that's a that's an interesting thing because of course at that age when you go to university the whole point is that this is a kind of really important point at being a coming an independent learner and an independent person too so I really feel for students in that way. And I, I have to say, a, a young woman not far from me, she said to me one weekend, you know what, I'm sick of you going on about how great it was when you were a student. And I said, yeah, actually, I'm sorry. I, I understand that. Um, she said, can you just stop apologising? This is where we're at. And I thought that was actually very insightful to see it that way. Um but I, I do think I absolutely agree with exactly what Graham was saying. What concerns me most of all is that interaction. It doesn't matter how old a learner is, that moment of being able to make something that could be improbable or just that seems out of their reach to connect with them and help that happen, help them learn that thing. It's very, very hard to do online, no matter how good you are. You know, and I, one thing I learned last year, for example, of teaching basic statistics in one of my modules, it's really hard to teach basic statistics online in a class. It's much easier when you're face to face and you can handle objects and talk to one another and make mistakes in front of the students. Whereas online, they will hide, they won't speak up, you know, all this kind of thing. You're just not building that rapport that you would normally have in the classroom. 
can I ask a, a, a general question, picking out from that? How well do you think we as a, a profession um, ha- have adapted to the crisis? And what can we learn to prepare ourselves for crises in the future along the same lines? Perhaps, Mary, you can continue? Well, well... <laughs> I don't, I don't know whether we can really prepare ourselves. I think a lot of people have criticised, you know, all sorts of uh, people in education, in healthcare and all sorts of things. Of why, why, why wasn't there a contingency for this? Well, we've never had lived through a pandemic before. We don't have anything in our lived experience. Most of us are lucky enough in the, the wealthy countries that we live in to not have, have a marker to work out something against. So... I think one of the things we can do, and I certainly do, the teams that I lead at at UCL and also the teachers who we educate there who are now going out into schools, obviously, and starting their teaching careers, is to actually just not be so hard on yourselves. When you're doing this, you're learning as well. And actually one really useful thing to show students and to model to students, no matter how old or young they are, is that we have to learn how to do things. Sometimes we get it wrong. And it's, you know, education is not a perfect linear process. And particularly, you know, in my area of expertise, which is assessment and testing, that certainly is not um, without lots of error. And one thing I think that's been very positive to come out of this, I've never had so many people tell me, God, I didn't realise how hard it is to teach kids, you know, having had their kids at home. And, yeah, my response straight away is, okay, yeah, do that for six hours a day with 25, 30 of them in front of you, and then you'll wonder why people need a holiday. So I think it's cracked open a lot of the nonsense often that's talked about what the role of teachers and teaching is, and that's been a positive side to to all the other horrors that have come along with the pandemic. Could I ask Mary a question quickly, just to follow up? Um Obviously, when they talk about the profession, like, I mean, they sort of just, we all get lumped in the same pot. But, you know, you talked about um, examinations. Now, obviously, just you spoke about the A-levels, which was a fiasco. I completely agree with you. And being someone that's worked a lot and had worked, for example, for a long time as a consultant, I know how much their hands were tied. But having said that, do you think that the way that the sort of teacher-assessed grading system, the centre-assessed grades, has undermined the value of GCSEs and A-levels moving forward. I mean, I feel particularly sorry for this current Year 11 cohort who probably will have to sit their GCSE exams, but they will not be measured by the same yardstick as the previous two years because of the way the way high-stakes exams work. So, obviously, I wonder if the credibility of our exam system has been Irrepar- you know, irreparably damaged? And if so, do we need a rethink on how we actually assess these kids at these two key milestones moving forward? The really quick answer to that, because I don't know how long recording we have, is that, yes, we do need to rethink what we're doing. But it's a political decision as well. And the people I criticised for 2020 and never teachers, exam boards, etc., because I started my career in, in an exam board as a research and statistician in one. Uh, I don't criticise them at all. Their hands are tied by government policy and the ineptitude of our political guides in the education department at that time. It was just, it was chaos. And we do need a rethink. I think that's another positive thing that's come out of COVID. But the downside is that already um, what's happening in lots of schools in England, and I suspect it's probably being replicated in other countries with kind of high stakes testing systems that are similar to ours, is that 
teachers, particularly in teaching years 12 and 13 now, are already testing students and gathering huge amounts of data as fast as they can so that this year's cohort for year 13 have lots and lots of evidence. And to me, what ha- what that's telling me is this is not about learning. This is not about education. This is about gathering as much stuff as you can in order to be able to give them the data they need to go to the next step. And and that's where the system is, is broken. And COVID is, has, uh, you know, shown us this at this point. So I think there is there's work to be done there, definitely. Alexa, do you have a view from the States? Yes, absolutely. So I think going off of what Mary was saying, what was the response or like, do we feel like there was kind of a cohesive response? And at least in the States, and maybe it sounds like in the UK as well, I don't feel like there was a cohesive state level or like federal level response to the pandemic where like things were under control and like ready to move on. I feel like it was very much district to district or school site to school site, really just the teachers taking that on and trying to adapt. I work in a Title I school where a lot of the students like don't have access to internet at home. So it was getting hotspots to those students to be able to connect it online. And it was a lot of teachers going out to students' homes and doing home visits to get them engaged. So I think that the missing link, like what Mary was saying, is that federal level input and uh, making sure that there is a response and that it is a standard response for everybody. Basically, students have received different education depending on like wherever they are located because it's been all left to the teachers and to the school site or to the district level as to what education students receive or lack thereof. Can I I ask all all three of you, students' confidence in the the system um, and their faith, do you think that's been an impact there? As far as like, I mean, I'm at the elementary or primary level, so I don't feel like students really recognize or understand yet at this level what systems are in place or what systems are broken for them not to be able to succeed. I think it's more so it depends where students are at, but I know at like the schools that I've worked at throughout this time, the teachers care so, so much and just making and building those relationships with students especially our younger ones, I don't feel like they have a sense of like a lost trust or anything like that, because I don't think that they have registered anything. I just think that they see that their teachers care about them and like want them to learn. I think for our older students, they, they might not, I feel like they're at an age where they're able to like recognize like, okay, well school, it's not working for me right now. So this isn't something that I need. And they kind of are rejecting it a little bit more. Um, And maybe secondary or university can uh, respond more to that. We're having to definitely what Graham said about like the whole child and like really understanding like who the student is, not just on the academic side, but also like social emotional learning has been huge um, because of just the lack of socialization and like the mental health crisis that we are in. Um, So I think that's been really important, but just making education work for students and that has it that isn't the traditional way that has happened in the past like it does have to change and either be more like kind of gamified or more just like engaging and interactive for students because that's the only way that they're going to learn and and not reject the education Graham, I know you've done some some smashing stuff over the years in terms of engaging with with students, and I can think back to some really good videos I've seen. 
your view on this or on the faith and trust from the student community? I think it's, it's, it's a difficult one. I think the faith and trust in teachers has probably gone up, actually, because what's happened with a lot of the students is school is their, the place they feel most safe for a lot of them. You know, safe, but I don't just mean safe in terms of like from a safeguarding issue. I just mean where they're allowed to sort of be themselves and thrive. And I think in that respect, I don't think they've lost faith. In terms of the exam system, I think the current year 11s feel that they're going to be really unfairly treated by having to do the exam when the previous two years didn't. But that's just, I mean, kids can't be allowed to have excuses. It is what it is. We've got to get on with it. But I do think they've lost faith in the exam system um, at secondary level. I think they're nervous and anxious about the whole thing. They don't really understand it, you know, because a lot of the kids think that the grade boundaries are set before the exam's even been taken. Of course, that's not the case. And you have to try and explain that to them and say, it's actually how you can, how how you perform in comparison to all of your peers will affect the grade that you are given. So everything is up for grabs. You've got to keep working. You've got to keep pushing yourself. But even most, even a lot of SLT and, and um, teachers don't really understand how high stakes exams work either. So it's trying to get that message that it's all to play for. Everything's up for grabs. If you work hard now and get the right mindset, you can still you know, get the grades that you want. Some of them feel that it's already over because they've missed so much. You know, and it's trying to sort of deal with that. That's the key question you've got to overcome and sort of keep them motivated. I think, I don't know if Mary agrees with that, but that's certainly my experience. That's the key question that students, you need to be able to answer. Okay. Going to bring today's discussion to a, a, a slow conclusion, if I may. And she asked if you'd like to pick up one or two points each for what you think the long-term impact will be from from the the. the the chaos and the challenge of the last 18 months or so. Shall we start with Mary? Thanks, Jeff. I think for me, it has to be, um, because this is my current area and, and real passion, is that we have to take a fresh look at what we are doing, what assessment means, the purpose of it in relation to teaching and learning in schools, and more generally in terms of the aims of our educational system, and that whole issue of, of reinvigorating the system, allowing um, that confidence to be rebuilt if we change something. And a lot of that is to do with message. So a lot of the work that I've done in the last couple of years, I've, I've observed student behaviours, um, discourses in social media, in other areas online where, where students go to speak to one another. And I've been working with some of my PhD students to examine these things. And I, I will plug it here, but I have a book coming out in the new year, which is called Restoring Public Confidence in Assessment. This is exactly what I've been trying to look at. And um, it will be a collective endeavour, but I think it's time for us to relook at what education means. And also, basically, our students deserve better but most of all, our teachers deserve better. Lovely. Yes, well said. Well said. Graham? You know, on the ground, I think digitally, I think, all you know, even if I look at the schools that I was working with already, so much more has gone online um, in terms of just, just generally how the communication, even just day-to-day tasks. So that is a, definitely a shift that won't, go, won't be fully reversed, and nor, nor should it be. However, I do think there's a danger that we don't lose something in translation from sort of traditional to digital. I think we can lose things and we need to be aware of that. So that's one key thing I would say. Um, I would 
echo what Mary said, is I think we do need to look at how our system, from an assessment perspective, particularly the high stakes exams, what what do we actually, what do we want our young people to be able to actually do? You know, and I think that that's a key question for me. You know, I was one of those students at school that always wanted to know why I was doing something. And if you have to answer why you're doing a lot of the maths curriculum, there's not always easy answers. I mean, that's probably, Jeff, where you're talking about where I've linked things to real world, which a lot of teachers wouldn't be able to do. We have to ask ourselves the question, what what do we want our young people to come out of school being able to do? And, you know, I, I'm not sure a lot of our systems and assessments do that effectively currently. So I think that that's a good thing that the assessment system, to, as a prediction, I would say we're likely to go to one exam board at some point in, in the next five years. And hopefully that might make it a little bit easier to reform from that side of it. Because at the moment, if one exam board tries to do something different, everyone just moves to a different exam board. So you, that's just it's just not it's not sustainable. So that that won't work unless unless something changes structurally higher up. And I'll finish there. Thank you. Now that's okay, Graham. Perhaps we should explain for for those outside England that there are three examples awarding bodies for high school um, sixteen plus and eighteen plus high stakes examinations in England, and it's a complicated world that we live in. Um, uh, Alexa. Last thoughts for yourself. Yeah, I think just going, kind of building off of what Graham and Mary both were saying is just assessments don't tell the full story right now of who a child is and what they know and what they learned. Um, So I think definitely re-looking at assessments and really gearing them more towards what we want students to know. So Grant, what Graham said about like kind of backwards planning, like what are the outcomes that we want students to have and what do we want them to make sure that they walk away with and then making assessments based off of that. Cause I think assessments right now are kind of more rigid and, and they've been in place for a while and the pandemic completely changed the landscape of education and assessments really need to catch up to that and be reevaluated and, recreated lovely thank thank you thank you alexa and of course i I can't finish without putting in my my advert for the beyond multiple choice conference on november the 2nd to 4th virtual Uh, registration is free and if you're listening to this podcast after the the conference then um you can watch it from the website and from youtube and if you before then please feel free to register and join us on november the 2nd to the 4th i'd like to thank my three guests this afternoon mary richardson graham smart and alexa markarian insightful interesting illuminating i'm sure there are people listening to this podcast will have comments we invite them all thank you everybody thanks for listening You can learn more about Beyond Multiple Choice and our upcoming free virtual conference by visiting our website at beyond-multiple-choice.com.